spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 67. I'm Jessica Uquinto and I'm your host. And today we are talking about Makuns Tamakwa, early career archaeological contracting. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Anastasia Walhoved on the show. Anastasia is an enrolled member of the Red Cliff Band of Ojibwe and descendant of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, as well as an archaeologist. She received her degree in anthropology slash archaeology from Harvard College in 2013 and will start her master's degree at New Mexico State University in fall 2022. Anastasia runs McCoon's Consulting, LLC, an archaeological contracting company, and she is the founder of the Tribal Archaeology Network. So welcome to the show, Anastasia. Oh, thank you. Bushu, Miigwech. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. So, okay. We mentioned Anastasia a couple of episodes ago on the Indigenous-led CRM businesses episode, and we had been hoping to have her join us on that episode. Like the boss lady that she is, she had to be in the field. So <laughs> getting work done. So we, we have her here today instead. But for everyone that is interested in Indigenous-led uh, CRM and heritage firms, definitely go back and, and listen to that episode and then come back to this one and hear more about one specific person's story after hearing about all of the different journeys from that episode. So really excited to have you because like we talked about before we came on air, the way that you've done things is a little different than anyone else. So I think it'll be a really interesting story for our listeners who are interested in the CRM route and not quite sure which direction they want to go in. So excited to have you. I think, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I think, you know, a, a lot of the people who are who are in the other episode are kind of a little bit later in their career, um, a little bit more advanced. And uh, I'm definitely not. <laughs> I'm definitely a newbie. But I, I have done things a little bit differently. I think, especially if you're like a student or you're just starting out, I think it's really good to hear from someone who's maybe at this point where I'm at in my career kind of get a feel for it and, you know, see what other directions you can go. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very excited and I feel very honored to, to be on the podcast. So Chima Gwich, thanks very much for having me on here. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that you were the late, most recently started company for that episode. I think there was one of the companies has started more recently than you did. So <laughs> you're not, uh, maybe not, not oh, as much okay. a newbie as you think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But uh, anyway, to get us started, first, what got you into this field? What what got you excited and interested in this kind of work? So when I was a kid, you know, you would always ask, you know, you always ask kids what they wanted to do when they grew up. And uh, well, I had a couple of things over the years, but archaeology was something that I always was really, really interested. I always thought it was very, very cool. I wanted to be an archaeologist. 
And, um, you know, my mom always had a subscription to National Geographic. And so I would read those from cover to cover. I thought they were so cool. And uh, my mom really encouraged us to um, go to travel and, and see new things. And I was just kind of really, really interested in the concept of archaeology. So I think that's that's how I originally got into it, it was just as a kid. And then as I got older and started applying for school, I specifically only applied to schools that had archaeology programs. And then I remember getting into school and kind of like learning more about archaeology and like understanding like what it meant as an indigenous person to do archaeology. And that was like the first time that I was like, oh, no, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, no, am I the colonizer? And (laughs) I was very, you know, it's like an existential crisis. And I think if you talk to a lot of indigenous archaeologists, a lot of them go through that. The crisis of like, you know, the history of archaeology is is very much so a history of colonization, um, and or and it's so closely tied with it, and it's been used as a tool of colonization. But I think sort of, I kind of had that little crisis, and after college, I was sort of dealt with it, and I worked in other fields for quite a while. Actually, I worked in natural resources for a little bit. I worked in uh, legal administration. You know, I worked in like restaurants. I bartended. I did all of these odd things. I'm the, I've been told that I'm the queen of side jobs to try and figure out. And I just kept coming back to wanting to do archaeology. And I finally kind of, you know, accepted like, you know, I'm going to have to use this really as a tool to benefit indigenous communities and benefit descendant communities um, and, and just like find the way to do that. And so that's kind of what's brought me back into it and, and feeling good about um being an archaeologist and being an indigenous person as well um, is trying to, to essentially transform this field into being something that is can be a force for good. That's a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no. Oh, trust me. I've <laughs> there have been people that have answered, and it's taken up the entire segment. <laughs> so that was actually pretty quick. <laughs> so when you were in college and you were first learning about archaeology and you're, well, not first learning about it, but you're learning about it for the first time in an academic setting and you're, Mm -hmm. you know, going through all of these things, trying to figure out, you know, what relationship you'd want to have with archaeology and its colonial background and stuff like that. Did you have any exposure to indigenous archaeology at that point? Like, had you heard about any of that while you were in college or was that something that you only came to later? That was something that I learned more about while in college and and kind of uh, probably after college more so, too. So I, I, you know, I remember asking around as a kid about like who knew anything about archaeology and like no one seemed to know anything about archaeology. It was kind of like, you know, it's like telling people that like you want to go to the moon or something like that. Like who becomes an archaeologist? Isn't that something that's in the movies? Mm-hmm. My parents, they worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs for a long time. And and so they knew that archaeology was like a real, a real thing <laughs> with a real job. <laughs> uh, but they not that they themselves knew all that much about it, but they knew that, you know, the BIA had archaeologists and they knew that they did some sort of survey work. And so I think a lot of people when you tell your parents you want to be an archaeologist, it's like telling them, I want to be a starving poet, you know, or <laughs> uh, a starving artist. And so it's, but to my parents, they were like, oh, no, no, like you can do that. That's like a real thing people do. We don't know 
that much about it, but we know enough that like you can actually have a job and be paid to do it. So they they were they were encouraging of me doing archaeology. But like the you know, no one had known we didn't know anything about indigenous archaeology, nothing along those lines. And I'm not sure at what point my tribe got a TIPO or a, a tribal historic preservation officer. I'm not sure. But at the time I don't know if my parents knew who it was or anything like that. They didn't really think of putting in contact with them. I was still really new. I didn't even really know that much about it. And then when I was in my junior year of college, I got a an internship. We called it like the summer youth crew. And I was the summer youth crew leader, which meant I was in charge of they had high school students that they were trying to introduce to careers and natural resources. Um, and I was in charge of, of these students. There was uh, two or three of them at a time, generally, that I was in charge of. And um, we, uh, we would go and shadow all these different professionals in, in natural resources. And I, I'm not sure how I finagled myself into that job, you know. Like, well, natural resources and archaeological resources survey are, are closely tied, you know, and you often have to do them for federal federal and state regulation and that sort of stuff. And although no, I myself am not I think I'd be a good a good fit for this position. And they ended up hiring me. And it was actually very in that time that we got to shadow uh, I remember I, I, I shadowed a gentleman who who was uh, an archaeologist for the for the BIA, and he himself was indigenous. Um, and uh, it was just kind of like it was a great time just walking around with him. We didn't do very much. I think we only maybe spent an hour or two with that man. But I was like, oh wow! <laughs> I was like, this is real. <laughs> um, that was like my first real experience, I think, with someone who was an indigenous archaeologist. Yeah, and then I got to meet the Tipo as well as I was doing that that job. And for a while, I shared, or I was in, in the same building as him, so we were very close offices, very close desks and that sort of stuff. And he was kind of telling me a little bit more about, you know, what he did and or what he does. Oh, yeah, what he did. He's no longer with us, and and you know what he thought of archaeology itself, and shared some of the, you know, he had a lot of reservations actually about archaeology. He was he was quite suspicious of archaeology. Um, and in uh, like why he was a little bit hesitant a lot with working with archaeologists, which makes a lot of sense. So I was kind of I learned a little bit from him. And that's when I was starting to get I think I got a little too cautious. <laughs> and I was like, let's try some other things in my career. Um, but I kept coming back to archaeology and I threw caution to the wind and said, you know, what? I think I'm smart enough and I have enough skills having done um, all these other things that I think I can do this in a good way. And I just got to keep talking to other people elders and people in my community and checking in with myself to make sure that I feel that this work is being done in a good way and it's going to be benefiting the community rather than harming it. So, gosh, what was the original question now? (laughs) Oh, so the original question, but it's funny because you actually answered some other questions that I was going to ask next. (laughs) So it's perfect. I was just asking about when you were in college whether you had seen any examples of archaeology done in a way that you would want to do it. Obviously, you saw a lot of examples and the history of what you wouldn't want to do in archaeology. Mm-hmm. But just like, what was that Yeah, something that you were exposed to at that point? Or was that more of a later finding examples on your own sort of a situation? Yeah, I think that's was more of a later finding. I think I and I still think that I'm learning a lot about what I think I want it to look like too. You know, I'm, I'm always learning this. It's like, okay, we want to do this. We want to, you know, add this into the, add this into the practice. So I feel like it's always, it's always evolving. It's not like I have this 
there's like a concrete stone and I chisel in the directions on like how to be the best indigenous archaeologist. <laughs> that doesn't exist. I think the the, the best way to be, I think, be an indigenous archaeologist is is recognize that this, this is a very sort of novel concept in a lot of ways. And in the, the, the field, you know, a lot of people like the idea of indigenous archaeology, but they don't know what it means. And to me, I feel like indigenous archaeology is such a an intimate thing, I think, for, for like not just an individual person, but also like within a tribe. And so one typo might see it a little bit differently than another typo. And I think a lot of it is about um, respecting and working with and listening to specifically the communities you're going to be most directly impacting with your work or that are like most directly interested or related to whatever it is, the site or whatever it is, the work that you're doing and working with them. You know, there's no perfect formula of like, yes, and this will be the perfect project in which you include native voices. Like that doesn't really exist. It's all about like learning to get a lot of feedback from people and finding the best way to incorporate all of it, being flexible. Yeah. So I'm still, I guess I'm, the answer is I'm still learning. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? I mean, I think, uh, yeah. yeah, if you if you're not, then that's when you get in trouble, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, so you stepped away for a little while, and you were doing the other things that you mentioned, and and you know it sounds like doing some of this research on your own, looking into to options or ways of doing it or thinking about it. What did mm-hmm. the journey back look like? The journey back archaeology. In let's see. In 2018, I was I was working in legal administration, and I had originally gotten into le- legal administration because I was thinking, oh, maybe I want to be a lawyer. I very quickly learned I did not want to be a lawyer, uh, but I was doing that for a little bit just to, to have steady income and et cetera. And um, I was just very, very unhappy with it. You know, I'm I'm uh, now that I've spent a lot of time playing in the dirt. I know that I'm supposed to go and like play in the dirt for part of the year. <laughs> I'm supposed to be out in the sun and that sort of stuff. I started volunteering for the Minnesota Historical Society. I got a little message from their their volunteer coordinator and she said, you know, I, I read over your resume and I see you have a degree in archaeology. She says, we have this volunteer position and we don't normally advertise it because it's generally full. She says, but there is an opening. We just haven't advertised it. Would you be interested in helping to catalog artifacts? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. So that's how I, I started, I guess, back into it was I was cataloging artifacts for the Minnesota Historical Society with quite a number of people who seems like they had been doing it for a long time. That's where I met Pat Emerson. And Pat Emerson was an archaeologist for the Minnesota Historical Society and kind of like a, a giant in Minnesota archaeology. She was uh, very encouraging for me to learn more and uh, get more experience. And at that point, I had had very, very little experience doing archaeology in my own, my own homeland. <laughs> Almost all my archaeology had uh, experience had been, you know, like my field school and like out east of Massachusetts and in Peru. And I hadn't done anything in Minnesota or Wisconsin. So she was very helpful and very encouraging for me as I was trying to get back into this. So I got invited to the, uh, they have Archaeology Month, month, excuse me, Archaeology Month hosted by the Minnesota Historical Society uh, in the month of September. And they do a number of different events there. And they had this uh, event, it was like a number of different archaeologists from around the state. And I think you could like, you know, 
uh, fling an atlatl and, you know, you could learn about underwater archaeology in Minnesota. And I think there was like a couple of cool collections that they put out on display. And, you know, that was out at Fort Snelling. And I went to that and I was having a conversation with the, the underwater archaeologists there lovely couple that runs a, a nonprofit underwater archaeology business in Minnesota. And uh, I had a long conversation with them and I was like, oh, I'd love to volunteer for you guys. <laughs> I was like, I'd love to put on some scuba gear <laughs> and like do some of this work. And that ended up being logistically a little challenging to, to do, but they, they put me in touch with uh, Jeremy Nino of Nino Cultural Consultant. And Jeremy Nino, I later learned was actually the one running the Adelaide stand. I just hadn't met him. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Anyways, he, um, I reached out to him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking to, to do work in this field, not just volunteer. I had been volunteering for, he said, uh, he said, you know, I've been looking for archaeological techs. He's like, I don't actually have any employees because I don't know. He's like, I don't have enough work to keep them year round. That sort of stuff. He's like, I only really know how to, he's like, I just have contractors. That's like all he was able to do at that point with the amount of work he had was he had contractors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he apparently, he must have listened in on my conversation um, with the underwater. So I thought I was very intelligent, <laughs> but we got to know each other a little more. And, and he said, you know, I, I would uh, love to have you on for the season, but you just have to start your own LLC. And the, to me, that was like, a, you know, it's kind of like, this sounds too good to be true. Or, you know, that's like a big commitment too. I think to, to think of like, I'm going to start my own business. Like, don't I, shouldn't I be an employee first and like work my way up? And the, but that's what I ended up doing. I decided I had asked around to a couple other archaeologists and they had been doing that for quite a while and they were making, you know, good money doing it and they liked their freedom and they, it was really working well for them. And I decided, you know, why the heck not? So I started at Macoons Consulting, um, and Macoons is an uh, Ojibwe word um, that means bear cub, and because I do feel a little bit like a baby bear cub in archaeology, I, I hope someday to be Makwa Consulting, which is bear, <laughs> not just bear cub consulting. But we're starting with Macoons. Maybe once I finish my master's degree, I'll switch to Makwa Consulting. But so yeah, I started up uh, Macoons Consulting, and I started doing work, and that was uh, that was a big game changer for me because I got um, an enormous amount of experience doing a lot of different things very shortly. Cool. All right, so we are already at our first break, but obviously I want to hear more about all of that when we come back. So we'll be right back. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right. Okay, we're back. And you were just telling me about getting the recommendation to start your own LLC. And I was telling you off air that my story was kind of similar in some yeah. ways. So you started this LLC and mm-hmm. then what? 
Yeah. So I started this LLC and I started doing work in the field and I was working with a number of archaeologists who were all contractors. We all had, you know, our own LLC. And uh, And this was all for that guy that you met at the the event that you went to. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. You know, I had like done some Googling. It wasn't like I just, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, asked around about him a little bit. And anyways, yeah. I, um, I remember I, I actually specifically asked Pat Emerson about it. He was like, oh, no, no, no. You should definitely do it. And I think that was kind of where I was like, oh, okay. Pat Emerson thinks this is a good idea. Then I will, I will look into this. So I got my LLC. I started up, I started going to the field with, with uh, everybody. And it was kind of a small group I think there was like maybe five or six of us who were all archaeological contractors with our own LLC working or subcontractors, I should say, underneath the larger contractor. And it was such a small sort of team and it was a very large project. And we were doing a phase two for an absolutely enormous area on a very uh, big historic site that had uh, a prehistoric component in it as well. So there was a lot going on. And so it was kind of an all hands on deck situation. And I, I have to give a lot of credit for uh, my success to these people that I've worked with because they were really showed me the ropes for a lot of things in, in CRM. And, you know, I had, you know, you get experience in field school digging, but it's very different once you get into CRM and to actually get out there and, and try and get things done, you know, on time and before it rains and before the thunderstorm and for the client and all these things. And, you know, they were with all the things that come into completing what we call a phase two, which is sort of a, an evaluation and assessment of uh, an archaeological site within Minnesota. We call that phase two. It was, uh, we would do the field work and then we'd come back into the field and they'd say, oh gosh, we really need someone to, to photograph all this because our normal photography guys got to go do this. And so they'd say, oh, Anastasia, you want to like give it a shot? And I was like, all right. And so then I learned how to do archaeological photography that day. And then you learn how to do cataloging um, in the Getty Art and Architecture Thesaurus. And, you know, you like, I kind of got this really whirlwind training and how to do a lot of different aspects of of CRM, of cultural resource management, archaeology that you wouldn't maybe normally get for a lot of techs in their first year, um, or maybe even a couple of years. A lot of people don't learn how to, they only learn one aspect of it. They learn about the lab, they learn about the field, but not not the other. So I was kind of thrown into this world and I, I like learned a little bit of everything right away. And I think that's, I attribute a lot of my success to those people who sort of guided me through that per- through that and uh, encouraged me to, to keep learning new skills, keep learning new skills. So that's how I got, uh, I guess, to where I am now. <laughs> and then like, you know, when that ended, did you work on projects for other people or how did that work? Yeah, I'm, I actually did a lot of projects for that same uh, company, Nino Cultural Consultants, for about two years. And uh, I, I didn't have many other clients. I didn't really have any other clients. And um, but in 2020, as you know, everything changed changes. And I ended up needing to archaeology had slowed down or CRM, I should say, really slowed down in archaeology uh, or in Minnesota, excuse me. And um, I was realizing, you know, I'm having a tough time making ends meet right now just doing this consulting business. So I started kind of keeping my eyes out to see what could I be doing, you know, to to try and bring in more income, essentially. And at that same time, my uh, my home community, the Red Cliff, Red Cliff Band of Lake Spirit, 
Ojibwe, I prefer, were looking for tribal monitors. And for those who aren't familiar on the show, describe what a tribal monitor does. So tribal monitoring is the uh, monitoring of either construction or archaeological activities to see if you're monitoring construction activities, it's often to see if there's any archaeological material there present that needs to be cared for. It's um, construction um, or excavation, really, I should say, because <laughs> it's mostly has to do with the digging. It's not like building a house. It's more like digging down for where you're going to like put a trench or something like or a utility or a road or something. Um, or often tribal monitors are monitoring archaeologists themselves to ensure that they are working in a way that is in compliance with or up to code with how the tribal community, the descendant community, these fit to make sure that, that they, they say that they're going to do what they said they do <laughs> uh, in, their, in their proposal often the time. So I got a, a position doing tribal monitoring back home during 2020, and I did that for a while. And that was a, 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 a great experience. I'm really, really grateful for it. And it was different in um, that I had... I hadn't really done any monitoring before and working for Redcliffe, this was the very first time that they had ever hired monitors. So myself and then another uh, gentleman, we were the first first two to do that. Uh, so that was like a very special thing to do. I felt really, I was really happy and really honored to be part of that sort of endeavor. So that's kind of, yeah, that kind of led into that. I think that's where I got to, See a little bit more. I, I had been thinking about and reading about and listening about indigenous archaeology, and, and I had done a little bit of what we call like a tribal communications point person because we had um, myself as a contractor with McCoon's Consulting and working with these other archaeologists. We had been monitored by tribal monitors in the past, and so I had worked with monitors. And I was always sort of you know when I was working with these archaeologists, they're like, oh yes, you're the you're the indigenous one. Why don't you be the person that like make sure that, you know, we call her and she knows where to go <laughs> and that she knows how to find us when she gets on site and, you know, be the communications person. And I was like, well, sure. Yeah, I can do that. But it was, I think that was a good moment in in speaking with some of those, with that monitor and, and some other monitors about like, okay, what are they doing? How are they doing it? Why are they doing it? What are they hoping to find or what are they hoping to not find or see? And and learning a little bit more about it directly from them. And, you know, I, I was really curious more about this monitoring aspect. And I, I still am, you know, I think there is so much that monitoring could do for tribal communities here in, in the U.S. or, well, probably across the whole world. But I always kind of tend to think very much so about the U.S. and Canada because that's where I'm based. I think there's, there's a lot to it. And that was sort of a, a big reason why I wanted to start the the Tribal Archaeology Network, TAN. Um, in that same summer that I was a tribal monitor for Redcliffe, I also started the Tribal Archaeology Network. And it kind of got born out of this, this thinking about being a tribal monitor and doing archaeology in my home community. And on top of that, and I was getting to know more people in the archaeological community in Minnesota back home, where I should mention that Red Cliffs in Wisconsin. And so I was getting to know more people in, in this area and kind of asked to, to be doing different things for, you know, maybe a professional association for um, an event, et cetera, involved with archaeology and just thinking, you know, I wish I knew more indigenous archaeologists. That was kind of the moment I was like, 
God, like, I really wish I personally knew more Indigenous archaeology. Because at the time, I really only knew, or like the one I was in contact with was one of the other contract archaeologists that I work with. And so, you know, we will we'll chat about, you know, she, she herself, she's not Ojibwe. And there's certain like cultural things and that I was like, man, I, I want, like, I want to talk to someone who not only has like a traditional knowledge uh, background about this, but like someone who also like really, I think, understands the nitty gritty of archaeology too, because it's such a unique, I think, space to inhabit as a person who is both an indigenous person and an archaeologist. So I was like, gosh, I want to talk to like my senior, <laughs> like a senior indigenous archaeologist. I was like, I must find one. <laughs> so I started uh, the Tribal Archaeology Network and I, I reached out to to her as, and I did know a, a couple others people kind of came out of the woodwork that I realized that I had met through the Council of Minnesota Archaeologists, one of them being Travis Armstrong, who is an Ojibwe archaeologist. And I had met him um gosh maybe a couple of months prior through the minnesota archaeology he had joined um he's from minnesota i believe he's enrolled in leech lake uh if i'm correct uh, but he's done work in minnesota he got his phd here but he is based in california now. Um, he was kind of my my go-to all right i need a senior in indigenous archaeology and i was talking to him and i was talking to the the tipo for my tribe marvin defoe and I was kind of, I was kind of bouncing this idea. I was like, gosh, I, I kind of want to like start an organization where people can, we can connect indigenous archaeologists and we can get these people to start having conversations because selfishly, that's what I wanted. You know, I, I need that. <laughs> I was like, I'm a, I'm a baby archaeologist. You know, I still be like a baby archaeologist. And, uh, you know, I, I need more big minds to learn from people who know lots of things, you know, I need, I need some elders. Who, who can I can talk to some elders of archaeology and elders of traditional knowledge as well. So um, that's where I started getting uh, some people together and started having some Zoom meetings right at the height of Zoom in the summer of 2020 in the pandemic. And it worked out really well. I think people were uh, just sufficiently bored enough at home from the pandemic and trying to also distract themselves from the chaos that was summer of 2020 that we had a pretty good, uh, pretty good interest of people, indigenous archaeologists, we had TIPOs, we had people in academia who all, some, I, I started sending out messages on like Facebook and um, having people send messages across like anthropology, archaeology, listservs, email listservs for different institutions, et cetera. And we got this mix people in academia, we had students, uh, we had TIPOs, we had people in CRM come and, and join some of these Zoom meetings. And essentially, it came, we were kind of meeting regularly. Now we're mostly on our email listserv. It's um, conversations going either on the email listserv, it's a lot of job postings, or there's a little more conversation that happens on Discord. We've actually moved into doing the Discord sort of stuff. And I think uh, that was kind of the big, the big brainchild at the time. I was like, I, we need a space for this where people can sort of ask for guidance or ask for uh, resources or talk about, you know, what they're doing or what they've done. If there's an interesting seminar, is there something going on? And having a space to share that where it felt like a safe space to do that because it was directed towards archaeologists, CRM, tribal monitors, people who wanted to do indigenous archaeology or were doing archaeology that they're working with indigenous communities directly. So. 
yeah, that was kind of the big, the big brain, the big brain child of the big effort of 2020. Uh, I was trying to connect some of these people because I didn't want to feel alone. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody's interested in in being part of this listserv or the Discord group, how do they how do they find out about it or how do they get on it? So our email listserv is hosted by the by Oregon State. And if I would actually recommend going to my business's website, dismacoonsconsulting.com. Coons is M-A-K-O-O-N-S and then consulting.com. And then there's a link at the top where uh, uh, if you click on the Tribal Archaeology Network, it will describe a little bit about what what we do, what is our mission, our goals. Scroll down towards the bottom, there'll be a little sign up button and that will bring you to that Oregon State email listserv subscription page. And they'll have directions on there, putting your email address and hitting the subscribe button. And we'll we'll just put you right on there. And the Discord information is a little bit more complicated to get to, but I will probably send that. I think I need to start sending that a little more regularly over the email, excuse me, over the email listserv so people can get access to it. But there's a way to access it through a Google Drive, <laughs> essentially. Nice. Okay. And we can, we'll put um, both your website for McCoon's Consulting and the the Tribal Archaeology Network page within your website in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in that, obviously you can search for it yourself as well, just from listening, you know, uh, or you can go into the show notes and, and find the direct link if that's easier. So, okay. In 2020, you were tribal monitor. You started the Tribal Archaeology Network. And where have you been in the last two years? Yeah. Actually, I took a total left turn here. So doing all of this and realizing, you know, I'm doing archaeology and, and realizing I really see myself doing this for the rest of my life. I realized I really need a master's degree. <laughs> so I ended up moving to the Southwest, actually, for a number of personal Ooh. reasons. My, my partner is is from, yeah, <laughs> my, my partner is from El Paso, Barters, and um his, uh, we, we moved to El Paso in November of 2020 for um, some some health reasons and about him and also his mother who was having some struggles. But uh, as well, I had been searching for a master's program and I was looking in Minnesota and uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the programs in Minnesota, but I really wanted something that felt very focused on cultural resource management because I personally think that there's a lot of indigenous archaeology I think has made a fair amount of headway in, in academia and academic circles. But I think that next hurdle is to really bring it to the forefront in CRM. And so I, you know, I kind of see myself trying to help bridge some of that. So I was looking around at programs and I, you know, I was like, gosh, you know, I'm in the Southwest. This is where, you know, this is sort of the archaeology uh, headquarters of the United States. I think a lot of archaeologists think of the Southwest for that because there's just such excellent um, preservation <laughs> as well as uh, wonderful. So I started looking around and just, you know, 35 minutes north of El Paso was Las Cruces. And New Mexico State University has a master's program that uh, really appealed to me, uh, particularly because you could get a certificate specifically in cultural resource management. And they had had that um, track or certificate 
um, for, I think, since the 70s. It's a very long-standing program. And so I said, you know, if I want to be the queen of CRM, I might as well go to the place that's been doing the CRM degree for a long time. So I moved to I moved to El Paso. And then shortly thereafter, about six months after that, I moved to Las Cruces, Mexico. And I've kind of been bouncing around on, on different projects there. I've been doing a little bit of work as an employee for a couple of different companies. And then, uh, but I have still been doing work for McKinsey. So I served again as like a tribal communications uh, point person um, for a couple of different projects that were Minnesota based where I was essentially, I was spamming all the tippos in Minnesota <laughs> to see if they were interested in sharing some information with us. And, and occasionally, you know, someone says, yeah, you know, I'll share some stuff with you. So I got to have some nice conversations that way on a couple of different projects that I unfortunately can't really elaborate on too much just for privacy reasons, but um, that I found that really rewarding and, and very informative and interesting to do some of that. Yeah, I, I can't say that I'm a tribal liaison because technically liaising between tribes is something that happens from federal agency to, uh, or like, you know, agency to agency, tribe, government to government. And we we're working on a, a project that was um, you know, I don't represent <laughs> any government or agency as private. So, but uh, I've been kind of uh, bouncing around doing a little work in Minnesota as well as in Texas and New Mexico. So I've gotten some some experience now in the desert and it is a wild time <laughs> in, in the Southwest. Let me tell you, it's very different. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. I want to, I want to hear more when we get back about mm -hmm. the difference, but right now we're already at our second break. So we'll just have to wait until we come back and hear more about the differences between the Southwest and Minnesota and Wisconsin. So with that, we'll be right back. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, and we are back. So I, I just, I, you know, I want to talk about differences between the Southwest and the Midwest. You know, New Mexico and Texas versus Minnesota and Wisconsin, but also you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, your field schools and other work in Peru and Massachusetts. So yeah, could you maybe touch a little bit on what it's been like working in, in all those different places and what makes the Southwest so wild? <laughs> sure. Let's see my field school. I had two field schools, which is, I think, kind of unique, but my, um, Let's see, I did my first field school was in Peru. Um, it was through uh, my college. And 
it was the San Jose de Mordo um, Archaeological Field School in, oh, what is the state now? Oh, it was in the Hecatepeque Valley. And a lot of people think of archaeology in Peru. They think of, oh, the Andes and Machu Picchu and all that. And this was actually, this was in the desert. It was in the northern desert of Peru. And I had a very lovely time. The sand there is so fine. Um, I thought I had gotten like a really wonderful tan in my field school. Um, and then I took, we worked, we worked six days a week at our field school. And once I got back to the U.S., I took two showers, two consecutive showers, showers, I say, one day after the other. And my tan washed off. And I think all the sand just that was embedded in my skin disappeared. And I was like, oh, man, I thought I had such a good tan. <laughs> <laughs> Not the case. Yeah, so that that was a really interesting uh, field school we were working. It was a Mote site. Um, it was located, it was actually a burial site. And I think that was... Uh, very, very different. Cause like here, I would never, I wouldn't want to do, do any burial sites. It's like, no, 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 stay away. I very can't, like, I don't want to, I can't, we don't want to do this. Please leave these people be. But in Peru, there's not really that stigma around it. And I, I kind of think about that a lot. I'm like, you know, but it's, we have such different concepts of, of, you know, what, what of death and what it means to be resting and there, there weren't any qualms about it there, but um, that was a really interesting site because it was among some wakas, which are like uh, sacred sites, temporal sites. Wakas are like little pyramids. And then there was burials and other archeological material nearby. And that's where a lot of our um, archeological efforts were directed as well as there's a archeological site on top of a very nearby, uh, like a little, I don't know if you'd call it a mountain range actually, but you had to really hike up that one. <laughs> that was that one was the, the, the difficult hike to go through. But it was very interesting because there was definitely archaeological material up there. But it was so far away from any source of water or anything like that. You would have had to hike up a mountain, essentially, in order to live up there full time. And so it was kind of this little puzzle of like, oh, gosh, like this really is a very practical place to be. But so I did my field school there in college. And then I think the really interesting field school that I did was actually right in Harvard Yard. So I went to I went to Harvard College and they have, I believe they're still, they, they are still doing it. They have what they call the Harvard Yard Archaeological Project. Harvard is been around for a long time. And so they just do archaeology right there in Harvard Yard. And I'm not quite sure where they've moved on to now, but when I was in school, they they had been directing their efforts towards finding uh, what was what is known as the Indian College, and the Indian College was the very first brick building um, in North America, actually, or no, at Harvard College, excuse me, the very first brick building in uh, Harvard College. But it was also the very location of the very first printing press in North America, hmm. which is pretty exciting. And not the year that I did it, but in previous years, they had actually been able to find. Uh, print type for that had matched one of the very first books. Actually, I think it is the very first book that was ever printed in the United States. It's a Bible, but translated into the Wampanoag language. And they had found, I believe, an O from from the typeset that had matched that the set that was in that Bible. So from that book, so I thought that was really interesting. But um, so that was my my other field school experience, and that was really, I think. That was kind of a formative understanding of indigenous archaeology too, as well, or just I shouldn't say indigenous archaeology because there wasn't necessarily a lot of indigenous people working on that project. I was one of them, <laughs> but like I was a student, there was definitely like a lot of consultation from indigenous communities on that 
project. And I think that was really interesting to see and learn more about. And, you know, like what were their concerns about that? And that same space where we had been doing archaeology, the Harvard was very insistent, the school itself was very insistent about like, you know, okay, you do archaeology here, but then you need to, you know, make sure you close up the hole. We can't have anyone <laughs> wandering around the yard and falling in <laughs> afterwards. So um, we had to be very diligent about making sure the lawn was manicured and, and put back in place so they could have, you know, good, good nice green sod laid down for the students. Um, but the interesting part was that space where we were digging was also used as a space for bringing attention to the Indian College. So there was a there's a plaque nearby um, at Matthews Hall um, that talks a little bit about it. Um, and but there more so than the plaque. I remember in while I was in college, we had uh, a couple of events in that area during what we now call Indigenous Peoples Day. But when back when it was still called Columbus Day, we would hold um, a vigil there, um, you know, sort of communicate why we didn't think that was you know appropriate to be celebrating him and it was kind of used as that communal space of like bringing attention to indigenous issues related to Harvard or just indigenous issues in general, but like particularly being aware that yes, we're on Wampanoag land and like we want to be um, acknowledging um, and, and respecting these people. And, you know, they, they, these are the people who had gone to the Indians, to the uh, Indian school at Harvard and essentially didn't have a great time because most of them did not uh, actually, none of them survived. The only one who actually managed to get a degree died shortly before he received it. It's rather Jesus. tragic. And then it's kind of a, a tragedy that, yeah, it was uh, essentially it was a school to proselytize to indigenous communities. It was it was, you know, you were learning about, you know, being being a Christian and that sort of stuff so that they could go back to their indigenous communities and essentially help to convert them. So it's a very um, sensitive and subject and it, you know it's just very you know it, it, it was something that a lot the descendant communities really wanted to be a part of in order to communicate you know what they felt about it and they're interested in it and like trying to communicate the nuance that comes with that as well of like you know these you know did they really want to do this or were they pressured into this and you know what did it mean to to you know be going into this outside of their home or outside of, well, it was their land, but outside of essentially the safety of their communities and moving into the white man's world at Harvard College in order to learn about it. Going back, I know you had asked me this earlier, but I was kind of starting to think really critically about like, okay, how do you do archaeology and, and honor all the different stories and perspectives that come with all these like really nuanced and difficult and sometimes really sad and tragic histories that come out of these archaeological sites and thinking about that really, really critically and really sensitively and like trying to include as many voices as you can in that conversation. Yeah. You want to go back to grad school. And part of that is yes. basically wanting to do indigenous archaeology within CRM, if I if I understood that correctly. So what are you hoping to do after grad school? Like, and how are you hoping to incorporate indigenous archaeology? Yeah. Well, for uh, archaeologists, you need to be, if you really want to, you know, be the master of your own destiny <laughs> in archaeology, you have to be able to be a principal investigator. And I, uh, you need a master's degree to do that. And so that's kind of the big goal is in order to 
really have control over projects that I take and the direction I want to go with them, um, as well as expand McCoon's Consulting to, you know, not just me doing field tech work um, and kind of doing these more peripheral things, but really taking like ownership of it. And it, you know, I'm the one that's applying for the grant or I'm the one that's applying for this bid for this client and trying to incorporate, uh, I guess, more uh, aspects of like indigenous feedback or like descendant community feedback into a lot of these programs, into a lot of these projects. And, and I think, you know, I see myself with that, with the, to being that principal investigator and, and expanding McCoon's consulting that way, you know, I think it's a good way to do that. I think there's, yes, I started the tribal archaeology network and now I know a whole bunch more indigenous archaeologists, but I want to know more. And in fact, I think it's time. I want to be able to start hiring some of these people and start training some of these people and, you know, getting more and more people into the field. And I think a lot of it is, you know, giving, giving a chance to someone who, you know, has got a degree from a tribal college and doesn't maybe have a four-year degree from uh, somewhere else and, and teaching them this, the skills of the trade and seeing if they like archaeology and seeing if, do you want to go further in this and giving those people the opportunity to, to really feel confident in this field? Because I think it is a really tough field to feel confident in as an Indigenous person. Um, you're very often the only person in the room who's an Indigenous archaeologist. And if you're a brand new baby archaeologist and you're the only one, people still turn to you and say, well, what do you think about this? Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, like you, you know, a lot of people are still sort of navigating that. And it's so to be able to make people feel, giving people that chance, I think, in the doors is a big, big part of what I really want to do. I think that's, I guess, just my passion project, I guess I should say. So that's kind of where I see myself moving towards is being able to not just educate people, but also with projects, start incorporating with someone about, um, this project that we were going to do because we aren't legally required to, but maybe we should, and maybe we should get some input on what, uh, what they think, or, you know, maybe this client, we get some artifacts um, from this site, but uh, legally the uh, landowner, if you're doing a site on a, on a private piece of piece of property, any artifacts you find belong to the landowner. And very often we'll ask them, do you want them to, do you want to keep them? Do you want to donate them? Et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, starting to make it standard, you know, it's like, would you like to return this to a descendant community? Little things like that make a huge difference. And, you know, and start giving tribal communities and descendant communities sort of a little bit more ownership about the archaeology that goes on and say, hey, we found, we found these flakes, we found projectile points, we found ceramic, you know, do you have a safe place? Do you want to keep these so you can decide what to do with them? That. That's like these little things that I think I want to uh, start making more. If I start doing it, you know, maybe that will become commonplace in the practice. I'll, everyone else who's not an indigenous owned CRM firm will say, oh, well, she's doing it. And like people, you know, the clients want that or people see that and they say, wow, that looks, you know, we want to do that too. We want to incorporate that into the project, into our process. And so, you know, having, being that person who's kind of helps to bring some of these ideas into the forefront is what I would like to do. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Oh, and so along those lines, like, I mean, you, you just mentioned a couple of them, but like what changes would you like to see in the field overall in the future? Like what direction, like what would you want CRM to look like in the future? What do I want CRM to look 
I think more, I want to see more indigenous faces. I want to see TIPO offices, tribal historic preservation offices expanded. You know, I think, and I think some of that is coming, uh, at least I hope so, <laughs> with uh, a little bit more investment into what is it, the, uh, with Deb Holland and the Department of the Interior and kind of investing more into spaces, public lands. And there's going to be, I think, a, a future of more archaeology out there with um, more money theoretically going to uh, these projects. And so I'd like to see more uh, people working to incorporate and listen to Indigenous voices and Indigenous recommendations of like ways to do archaeology that you know subtle things like asking like i mentioned before you know do you want to donate the land you know asking landowners do you want to donate your artifacts to a descendant community or you know even seeing if descendant communities would be interested in that or not some some might not have the capacity to do that but i think starting to make people ask these questions and do these things, it's going to start putting things into, into motion and, and more and more of the field, I think is going to come, you know, I think there's more museums will open up and <laughs> more people are going to get interested in it and more people are, there's going to be more tribal monitors. And um, at least that's what I hope for is, I, I, you know, if you start doing these sorts of things, tribes are going to start putting more bugs in people's ears in their home community. Like we need more archaeologists, we need more archaeologists. And Hopefully that will push people to get into the field more. So then I don't have to feel so so lonely <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. On that note, I guess, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting note to end on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of so, bad, wasn't it? Yeah, that, I know. That last little sentence. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, more more indigenous archaeologists come into the field so Anastasia doesn't feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And with that vision of the future. Exactly. That's mostly why. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I, I can't wait to, you know, have you on again in, you know, like five or ten years and and hear about how you're actually doing all of these really cool things. But in the meantime, thank you so much for for coming on and obviously all the best at NMSU. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at Jessica and at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.